Hello, everybody. This is uh, Todd, as you know. Um, this episode is something that's a little bit different from what you're used to hearing. Uh, it's a it's actually the first episode from the 10,000 Things podcast that Dr. Carl Totten and I recorded uh, in 2020 and 2021. Uh, this episode is called Escape from Freedom, and it's based on Eric Fromm's landmark exploration of the human condition. Um, the book poses a big question, and it's, is man naturally freedom-seeking or an automaton that seeks to be controlled by others? Uh, it's a powerful book, and I think that you'll love Dr. Totten's insights as a psychologist on this big issue. Uh, he brought up escape from freedom a lot of times on what's this Tao all about. So it was cool that on this other podcast, 10,000 Things, that we could go and really get in there and take it apart without people who normally just wanted to hear us talk about Taoism getting disappointed in the show. So uh, this was a great ancillary podcast that we did. Uh, previously, this episode was only available to paid subscribers on our What's This Dow All About Patreon page. Uh, but I want to share it with you now because I just think it's an important conversation. And I want to give people a chance to have a little taste of what we did with the 10,000 Things show. We originally did nine episodes of 10,000 Things covering topics such as Eric Fromm's book that we you'll hear today. And we also talked about The Politics of Experience, a book by psychologist Artie Lang. Uh, we talked in depth about 2001 A Space Odyssey, which is one of the favorite, my favorite podcasts we've ever done. Uh, we talked about Ho'oponopono, which is a Hawaiian spiritual practice that Dr. Carl Totten is really into. And you probably heard him bring it up a whole bunch of times on What's This Dow All About? Uh, we also talked about out-of-body experiences, uh, weird spiritual practices from around the globe. So the show, we really kind of got out there, and it was a lot of fun to do. Uh, but then when Dr. Carl Totten had some health problems in 2021, we, you know, we stopped doing the show. But uh, you can still hear it, uh, all nine episodes of that, at patreon.com slash what's this Dow all about. And... You know, it's five ninety nine a month to subscribe to our Patreon page, but um, I think it's a cool way for people who wanted to support us for all the hours and days and all the time we put into creating What's This Dow All About, and uh, people get a whole bunch of content back for that. Um, we did 10,000 Things. Um, there's also a show there called The Dow of Todd, uh, which is kind of me talking about some Taoist ideas. And some episodes of What's This Dow All About that no one's ever heard before unless they're Patreon subscribers. So there's over 28 different podcasts at patreon.com slash what's this Dow All About. So here's a taste of what we did. It's an entire episode. It's about an hour long of Escape from Freedom. If you like it, go to patreon.com slash what's this Dow All About. And there are free previews of like every all the 28 episodes we have on there. So you can go in and check it out. Uh, at the uh, Patreon site and give it a listen. If you dig it, subscribe. Uh, if not, just enjoy this conversation of us talking about Escape from Freedom. The Tao begot one. One begot two. Two begot three. And three begot the 10,000 things. Dr. Carl Totten and Todd Perry are here to talk about them. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the first ever episode of the 10,000 Things with myself, Todd Perry, and with me is the great Dr. Carl Totten. Wonderful to be here. The Dow is growing. Yes. Yes, and so, you know, for those of you who just subscribed on Patreon, I would like to really thank you so much from the bottom of our hearts for, you know, for supporting our show and, uh, you know, supporting its expansion. And I hope that you uh, really enjoy all the fun stuff that we put on the app. We're going to have, uh, obviously, an interview with Jane English popping up on here shortly, if not already on there. Uh, there's going to be some blog posts about Taoism and... Um, and you get to join us as we uh, as we expand on ideas and explore new areas of philosophy, psychology, and culture through the Taoist lens we used on the other show. Mm -hmm. So uh, thank you for joining us on this trip, and we hope it is worth your while. 
So going back to the early days of doing What's This Dow All About, I believe Dr. Carl Totten, somewhere within the first 10 episodes, brought up the book Escape from Freedom by Eric Fromm. And we were recording these episodes in about the year 2015. And for me personally, it was kind of a peak in interest on this topic of man's relationship with authority. And Mm -hmm. I think at that point, it was like I was doing this show and getting back into Taoism and really focusing on Taoism's emphasis on minimizing the amount of authority that the average man has to deal with, whether it's from uh, a you know, caste systems in society, whether it's from government, whether it's from religion, whether it's from, you know, rigid, uh, rigid systems that man has to deal with. And it's really about, you know, letting the individual blossom by finding one's true, ever-changing self mm-hmm. is kind of what Taoism is about. Correct, Dr. Thomas? Yes. yes. And, you know, and throughout history, I think embedded in culture government, certainly religion, you know, the the notion of some outside agency trying to control people, trying to control thought, trying to control, of course, resources, you know, money, (laughs) and the things that lead to money, you know, like, uh, you know, ore or gold or steel or coal or whatever, you know, has essentially been one of the hallmarks unfortunately, of all of human history. You know, I often say, if you look at the, you know, just look at uh, any book on world history, um, and it's, it's, a, it's a litany of efforts to dominate, manipulate, and control, you know, by large institutions of government, cultural institutions, the church, religion, uh, move, movements uh, over the uh, centuries that have had that enforce mass allegiance to dogma. And that's very undaoist. <laughs> you know, that's something that I think, you know, Lao Tzu, the, you know, kind of the, you know, the person most identified with Taoism kind of railed against. And, you know, much of the his writings the da- in the Tao Te Ching are really about, you know, personal freedom and liberation and moving to a higher state of awareness and consciousness. And to that end, he actually gave a good amount of advice to leaders, basically telling them to back off, <laughs> yeah. you know, to, uh, to, to, to not have such a heavy hand. In fact, he, he often said that the best leader was the one who you never saw, you know, because the, the best leader was the one who didn't, you know, brag and yell about what he's doing or not doing, but instead just quietly made sure that, you know, all the crops were harvested and the people had enough to eat and people, you know, lives were comfortable. And, you know, you might say that, you know, the trains ran on time, so to speak, (laughs) (laughs) and just quietly, efficiently got everything done, uh, you know, without ever, you know, yelling and screaming and bragging about anything. He felt that that was the best leader because then there'd be no pushback. There'd be no resistance from a population that felt that they were being manipulated and told what to do because nobody likes to feel like they're being manipulated and told what to do. Unless, of course, I'm just going to say one more thought, unless, of course, you convince them that that is, in fact, the way that things are and and there's no other way uh, to approach things. But people's natural instinct is is for freedom, you know. Hence our topic today: uh, freedom and escaping from freedom. The so, yes, also, ahead. I oh yeah, also I think that in the Taoist way of looking at the world, all of that intrusion from these kind of authoritarian institutions is unnecessary because those that understand the Tao know that there's a already a way, a path in place in which everything can work harmoniously together without forcing things, and that these outside agencies in many ways are really unnecessary and uh, don't go to serve, you know, detract from what we already naturally have is yes. kind of the idea. Yes. And, and and so around like 2015, you know, uh, I read this article in Vox which Vox sometimes has real good stuff, sometimes it's junk. But this was something I've reread many times because it was a really thorough look at what was called the rise of American authoritarianism. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. And in reading it, I thought that it was very strange because as an American, it's oh, you know, it's, it's like the Constitution is kind of designed for people to live with kind of positive freedom. You know, people be able to speak freely and pursue, you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and that the whole setup was kind of against authoritarianism. And mm-hmm. I kind of saw that as, you know, just the evolution of mankind, that we move away from these authoritarian types of things, whether you're living in a monarchy or you're living in, you know, fascism or all these different things, or you're living under a theocracy or, you know, you're living under a you know, really demanding spouse. <laughs> but <laughs> I always thought, that, you know, the it, it was the, the, the kind of American ideology and lots of the kind of, you know, neoliberal um kind of struck government structures that have developed over time, whether they're talking about Europe or in, in parts of Asia and everything, that we just keep moving towards this more uh, free society. Uh, but and, and I thought, well, that's just probably because that's the way man naturally is, and we're finally getting things right. But then I start reading this article on Vox, and it talks about uh, how they did studies. And I, found that, I think I found these numbers from Politico, and it was that 18% of Americans are highly disposed to authoritarianism, according to like uh, personality surveys they do. And 23% are just one step below them on the authoritarian scale. So about roughly about 40% of Americans tend to favor authority, obedience, and uniformity over freedom, independence, and diversity. So I was reading this, and I, th- I was reading this and coming to this conclusion that possibly... I was under the mistaken idea that it was kind of man's, as, as kind of stated in the Tao Te Ching, natural way to be individualistic. Um, not, not individualistic in a way that you're like, oh, I'm all about me and I don't have to have compassion or help other people or anything like that. You know, because Taoism is all about individuality, but also having that balance of responsibility for your fellow man, right? Yeah. Um, so it came to this, I was like, wow, so what is the true nature of man is it is is it a blip on our radar as a species you know to pursue this type of free way of living or, or is that against who we are and is it very stressful for many people to live without you know the hand of authority over them telling them what to do and without giving them the sense of belonging that comes with being part of a larger kind of collective um, so, yeah, I, I began really thinking about this and reading about it. And then Dr. Totten, you magnificently, I think on our show, pointed me to this book and I read it. I took a whole bunch of notes and I was like, oh, I got to can't wait to talk about this with Dr. Totten. And then this new show became the perfect way to do it. <laughs> yeah, the, you know, the, that book, I think I think I first I'm sure I was in college, you know, as a college undergrad. You know, we had to read, you know, kind of all the, you know, the, you might say the great books, you might say. In, in two places, I had a an amazing English literature professor who was just astonishing. Every Monday, we'd get a new book that we had to read. I mean, whether it was War and Peace or, you know, I mean, just, the, you know, the great, the great books, so to speak. And then the following Monday, you know, we'd have to come in having read the book and answered some questions about it and, and then have a, a class discussion every Monday. That was amazing. You know? that, that must, it must be difficult for them to be like, you got to read War and Peace this weekend. <laughs> <laughs> well, we had, we had an entire week. <laughs> we had seven days to get it Still. done. Still. <laughs> you know, and, you know, the Brothers Karamazov, which was the professor's favorite book, for example. Mm. And, uh, and 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 you just go down the list, you know. The, you know, you know. We had to read. Uh, um, I'm trying to think. Yeah, I mean, just all, all of the you know the classics. Uh, you know, we we wound up reading and discussing in class, and then sometimes on the weekends, the professor would actually invite us over to his home up in the Nichols Canyon. You know, up in the, mm. the, the Hollywood Hills, he had a circular home. First one I'd ever seen in my life. A beautiful circular home. You know, and wow. we, his wife would fix his tea and uh, and and crumpets, so to speak, and we'd sit around and discuss the world's great literature. I mean, that class. In, in a large respects, really helped make me who I am. Wow. Th- you know, that year being in that man's class was incredible. I'll never for- forget. He lived to be 90-some years old. I think he just passed away a few years ago. 
I'll never forget him. His name was Dewey Ajioka. <laughs> He's a Japanese-American. Oh. And uh, just one of the smartest uh, human beings I I've ever met. And he encouraged us every week to go through the great literature, whether it was Lord of the Flies or or uh, you know portnoy's complaint or you know whatever it was and 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 talk about it and how it, it could impact our thinking and our lives by becoming aware of big ideas he was a big idea person mm. and so that and so i think it was in that class that i f first discovered escape from freedom and um, it's been one of my personal favorites you know, for now, what, gosh, over 40 years. You know, you may have read the book under the guise of a brilliant, or the tutelage of a brilliant professor in a circular home in the Hollywood Hills. I read this book <laughs> while on jury duty <laughs> in the Long Beach courthouse. Just me and my highlighter sitting with my juror ID badge on, plowing through the classics. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My, mine was a bit more expansive than that. <laughs> Just a bit. So, yeah. So the book came out in 1941 and was written by Eric Fromm, and it basically it was it was written, I guess, before the conclusion of World War II. But I it, it was inspired by the events in Germany happening under uh, Hitler. And um, so he kind of, it's basically like someone saying, hey, look, this is what's happening in Nazi Germany. Let's work our way backwards. Mm -hmm. And it goes back to, you know, the earlier, like, feudal times in which man was not free. You know, man was essentially, you know, somewhat of an indentured servant, you know. Um, and then moves over to, like, the, the Protestant Reformation and about how individuality starts to stem from this, given that man now has a one-on-one -on -one relationship with God versus kind of an institutional relationship with God through the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. So, and then, and then we move into um, kind of the capitalist kind of world that begins to develop in which man is selling his wares and man becomes identified kind of a, as a commodity versus, you know, a full flesh and blood human and how that leads him to want to escape his own freedom mm -hmm. into authority and stuff. So, uh, and then it, then it goes into Hitler. Um, as all things, all roads lead to Hitler. And, uh, you know, and one of the things I liked about Fromm is that, you know, he points out that, you know, usually we think of freedom as just freedom from something. You know, we don't want to be oppressed or, you know, we don't want to feel manipulated. We don't want to feel controlled. And certainly that is an aspect of of uh, freedom. But there's another aspect that he felt was equally as important or more important, perhaps, which is freedom to, the freedom to express ourselves, freedom to have a completely integrated personality, um, freedom to be creative. You know, something I tell every one of my clients, uh, you know, as a therapist, is that, you know, you are completely unique human being out of billions and billions and billions of people who have been born on planet earth there's never been anyone just like you that means that your mission should you decide to accept it <laughs> is to be fully and great you in all of your creative capacity and aspects to develop parts of your conscious and subconscious that have been offline because you weren't aware that it even existed, that you did, had no means to get in touch with, and, and that your milieu, your upbringing, your, your, your childhood, your adolescence, and your adult, young adulthood never gave you the space and the opportunity to develop. And, and I'm hoping that in our relationship, you know, as client and therapist, that I am able to ignite that spark so that you can become truly the great, greatest human being you're capable of becoming and becoming and becoming because you're not done. You're not finished. And psychology, of course, has focused on pathology. You know, what has gone wrong with people? What have been their traumatic episodes that has limited their ability to f just to function in, quote, a normal way? And we know that society highly values its, quote, normal person. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of my uh, 
senior students came up to me many years ago, probably over 10 years ago, and you know, he was just feeling the, uh, I think, the pressure to kind of get along, uh, go along to get along. And he says, you know, I just want to be normal. And I stopped him. I said, no, you don't. You don't want to be normal. That's the last thing you want to be. You know, <laughs> you are a unique, creative human being. No one has ever been like you ex- in the entire history of the world. And you want to be normal, which means the norm. You want to be like everybody else. I said, no, you're better than that. You yeah. know, let's work on developing you to your fuller capabilities. And so that's something that Fromm pointed out is that if we use our freedom to expand we have what he called something like the spontaneous realization of the self, where you unite himself anew with the world and becomes literally a creator, a creator. You know, know, in most of the uh, spiritual and many of the religious traditions of the world, you know, we, we of course, idealize uh, a, uh, a divinity, a divine personage, you know, like a god as being the creator. But, of course, we're said to be created in whose image, right? God's. This this divine uh, entity. Well, if we're created in God's image and God is the creator, what does that make us? (laughs) Creators too, right? (laughs) You know, but many, many people just in the course of growing up have that creativity squelched. How many parents... You know, their child is coming up and saying all sorts of really imaginative things, having magical friends and really uh, kind of out of the box ideas. And they and, and they denigrate the child by saying, oh, that's just in your imagination, you know, you know. And the imagination shouldn't be denigrated. That should be. Wow. It's it, just your imagination. Like you're plugged into it. It should be cultivated, you know, because to me, imagination means imagery in motion. You know, the ability to visualize creative outcomes and then actualize them, put them into motion. That's imagination. And to me, imagination is maybe the single most important thing we have as human beings. Can you imagine if we had no imagination, we'd still be back in the cave cave person times, yeah. you know, still trying to figure out how to light a fire, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and so imagination has sparked all of the growth of humanity for tens of thousands of years. And so imagination, far from being something that we want to limit, should be something that every human being should feel is their charge every day when they uh, awaken is, you know, what new and fresh and exciting and different and creative can I actualize today? Because that is why I am here on this little pale blue dot, floating through space, you know, you know, with these all with these uh, what eight seven eight billion unique individuals, each with the opportunity to do something brand new. Yeah, Eric Fromm, uh, to piggyback on that, he posits there are kind of three different uh, buckets that we can find ourselves in in life. That's Pre-freedom, negative freedom, and positive freedom. So pre-freedom would be like when you're a child and you really, you're, you're completely controlled by your parents. Uh, you long for freedom. You know, I can remember me being in a sitting with my sister in my mom's car as a little kid going, you know, when I get a car... I'm going to drive to Disneyland on Monday, Knott's Berry Farm <laughs> Tuesday, Marineland on, you know, and it was this longing for freedom and that kind of headspace. <laughs> or some people get stuck in pre-freedom their whole life. If you are, again, living under the thumb of a lord, you know, or if you were a slave or if you were somebody that was living in a very rigid theocratic uh world which is a lot of that going on these days still or you know you're you're never able to branch out uh and then the next step is called negative freedom when we're talking again we're talking about freedom from mm-hmm. you know where you're like oh, i just want freedom from want or freedom from being abused or free you know it's like it's sa- kind of a safety mm-hmm. uh part like you're free because you're safe which is valuable if you're coming out of a pre-freedom Mm-hmm. Especially if it was a negative pre-freedom space. And then in the end, 
Uh, Eric Fromm posits that the greatest place to be is in a place of positive freedom. And let me explain that end goal here as he says it in the book. So in a sense of positive freedom, he says the, you know, the ultimate vision of this is kind of the artist, the creator, the spontaneous, and writes, in the first place, we know of individuals who are or have been spontaneous, whose thinking, feeling, and acting were the expression of themselves and not of an automaton. And an automaton is somebody kind of living in negative freedom. And that's kind of somebody who lives vicariously through others, uh, lives vicariously through championing a leader. You know, there's there's like the, the old saying by Nietzsche, it's that... Um, Fanaticism is the only way that most men will ever reach grandiosity or greatness. Mm. My sports team won. The guy I voted for won. Uh, my city won the Olympic Games. I don't know, right? There's, um, or you know, Luke Skywalker beat Darth Vader, and I was watching it on TV. You know, yeah, yeah. Um, kind of what uh, Fromm talked about when he talked about you know the kind of different needs of a human being, and one of them was security through belonging to something, you know, identification with something, a clan, a religion, a nationalism, you know, you know, something that by and by identifying with that, we pull ourselves out of the existential crisis that might come from awareness of ourself as a human being with who who's subject to uh, aging, uh, death, you know, illnesses, uh, other limitations and, and loneliness, you know, by understanding that we really are really unique and different than anyone else. And so we're, we're, we're kind of always juxt, juxt, in juxtaposition of, on one hand, having a need to belong, and on the other hand, being in the reality that we're actually are really unique and in, and, in, and, in a sense, really completely alone. And people have will do many people, particularly if they haven't really developed themselves at deep levels, will do almost anything to deny and escape from that feeling of being really unique and alone, and that and that they're a person who's actually finite and actually is going to die someday. And to avoid that, we will identify with uh, all sorts of manipulative controlling entities and deny our own freedom just to feel this f almost false sense of security. Yeah, uh, Fromm writes in the book that man's first, like, greatest fear is isolation. It said that religion and nationalism, as well as any custom or any belief, however absurd and degrading, if it only connects the individual with others, are refuges from what man most dreads, isolation. Mm-hmm. And then there's an, a second, it's the, I, the, the need to belong. says, you know, there's another element, however, which makes the need to belong so compelling. By being aware of himself as distinct from nature and other people, by being aware even very dimly of death, sickness, aging, he necessarily feels his insignificance and smallness in comparison with the universe and all others who are not he. Mm. Unless he belongs somewhere, unless his life has some meaning and direction, he would feel like a particle of dust and be overcome by his individual insignificance. Wow. Wow. So he finds security. Yeah. Wow. Uh, so he finds security through belonging. And this identity with nature, clan, religion gives the individual security. He belongs to and he's rooted in a structuralized whole, which sees an unquestionable peace. A place. He may suffer from hunger or suppression, but he does not suffer from the worst of all pains, complete aloneness and doubt. And I think that's a huge reason why if you challenge somebody on their beliefs, if they're kind of political, which leads into their you know, national identity or mm -hmm. uh, ideological identity or their religious uh, convictions or anything like that, that people, regardless of facts and everything, will 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 deny you know anything just to preserve that worldview because without that if they are in this state of living in negative freedom mm -hmm. or pre-freedom they are going to lose uh their only sense of security in this world um and so and then i guess that would become like a perpetuating cycle where you have to keep defending this thing that keeps you from being what you believe is isolated mm -hmm. and insignificant 
Mm-hmm. You can imagine how this th- this level of thought completely blew my mind when I was you know I was like eighteen years old and when I'm studying things like this and I'm just going ah my goodness you know because I mean these are thoughts you know that were pretty pretty heady and heavy for an eighteen year old kid you know hearing about stuff like this for the first time um, and it and it really nicely of course dovetailed with what I would be learning later from Tao, from Taoism. Yes, you know. that's the thing, yes. It's like, it's right there, it's right on the page. It's like pre-Tao awakening, post-Tao awakening, <laughs> Exactly, right? exactly. And I, so I, I think I, this helped prime me to be really receptive to Taoist thought in many ways, you know, as, as an as a, as a older teenager and as a young adult. And one of the things, though, that I, I, I love about Taoism, of course, is that, you know, Taoism in many respects looks at reality as being a, a, a field, an energetic field. And now a field, of the universal field, of course, contains what? Everything. Yeah. Everything. Now, and we we are an integral part of that field of everything. Talk about this, a theory of everything. Taoism yeah. is the original theory of everything. It is. <laughs> it really was. And so if we are, in, in addition to being completely unique and original, and yet are also an integrated and integral part of this energetic field of totality, this universal totality, then in one sense, we're always connected and we're never really alone. Mm. Whereas these existentialists, since I think that they didn't always understand that aspect that well, felt that the way to freedom was to really accept your aloneness and isolation and just kind of get over it, so to speak. (laughs) Because they said this is man's throne condition. We're just kind of thrown here into the world, completely isolated and alone. And so in order to live a life that's worth living, they said, what do we have to do? We have to create meaning, right? And so they say man is a meaning-seeking organism, uh, which is true. We do seek meaning, and, but how we seek meaning and where we seek it, of course, is something that we as individuals and as a family and as a society and as a community and as a culture have to decide. And is in is seeking that sense of belongingness going to diminish our sense of freedom or expand it? That mm-hmm. I think is the crux of where we are as, as a as a species as humans. It, you know, yeah, it's, how, again, how and are that's, we going yeah. to express that? You know, I would. You know, in, in what you just said, I in relating this to Taoism uh, and the Tao and Tao consciousness. It's this idea of you have the negative freedom where one has to be you know connected um to these institutions or you know authoritative regimes or connected to to think or or favor a sense of belonging over a sense of self sufficiency or just with you know mentally and physically you know um that a lot of it has to do with the basic kind of Taoist idea of being able to sit with one's own thoughts like in meditation. And in meditation, you're sitting there and you're like, I am my own being. I am sitting there not being attached even to my own thoughts. I am in a true sense of kind of aloneness. But through that kind of aloneness and submission, one connects to the greater totality. Yes. Yes. And realizes that there's this greater totality out there that isn't just my man-to-man connections, person-to-person connections, and that there's a greater bond to something even beyond that. And that feels to me like a positive freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the Taoist willingness to feel secure even when not... Feel secure being connected to the greater totality versus security clenching his fellow man's arm or holding on to the leg of his mother. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> or... 
being a subject to the ruler, right? Mm -hmm. Who will provide for them. and psychologically fact, and physically. Yeah, in fact, I was just thinking uh, as you were saying that. Remember, Fromm was what uh, besides uh, he was his uh, PhD was in um, sociology. Uh, obviously, he's a great thinker, intellectual, a writer, uh, but he was also a trained psychoanalyst. Oh, uh, he was a trained psychoanalyst, and so going back to the psychological. The birth and development, going back to Freud, you know, Freud says that, you know, we're, 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 we're you know, he, he says that by the time you're five years old, basically, you know, your entire personality for life has pretty much been formed, you know, oh. you know, because, you're, you know, we're, we're connected to our parents, particularly to our mother, right? And be, because all of our life essentially came from our attachment to this nurturing nurturing source you know the the milk and the the the, the cradling and hugs from the mother you know the psycho psychoanalysis says that you know in order to actually individuate and become a functional human being we have to somehow integrate our needs for attachment and belonging in a social situation starting with our initial uh relationship with our mother and then our family, and then our school and community and so on. And somehow we have to balance that with becoming a, an adult capable of free thought okay? yeah. and capable of free, freedom of expression. And that becomes, for many people, a battle, a war, you know, because, you know, what's going to win, you know? And, and also, you know, you were talking about, you know, kind of getting in touch with oneself over the course of growing up, you know, with all of its diversions and traumatic experiences, you know, episodes of longing, needing things that we didn't get, what does a child do if they need something, especially something along the lines of, of, of love, which is a embedded need, as, as well as material things, you know, like food, warmth, clothing, protection, etc.? If we don't get that to the extent that we really need it as a as an infant and as a toddler and a young child, then either we have to numb that part of ourself just to kind of get along and then settle for something that becomes a substitute, you know, yeah. something that stands in for these basic primal needs. And many, many people live their entire life essentially substituting those primal needs for secondary, second-order, third-order needs like respect or money or accomplishment in some field that outsiders will validate them for and say, oh, you're doing good because you have this. It's usually attached to some external, externally, uh, rec- system of recognition where we're getting um, uh, positive strokes and recognition uh, from something that people outside of us can see and recognize or maybe even purchase and buy, you know. And certainly that is embedded in our capitalist system in, oh, yeah. a, in a large way. <laughs> and that's why, uh, you know, a lot of these existential philosophers had as part of their uh, system, you know, critiques of uh, particularly vulture capitalism, you know, because it substitutes, you know, individual well-being and and expression, creative expression, for uh, this kind of conformity, and then uh, and so that happens in a capitalist system, and then in a more controlled system like a fascist or communist system, you know, that becomes obedience to an ideology or to a strong, tough leader. And that, of course, is something that in these days, of course, you know, throughout history, you know, we've seen, you know, this allegiance demanded to an emperor, a president, a king, a dictator. <laughs> and, of course, we know what that, what that led to in communist Russia and in Nazi Germany. And now, even now, in 2020, 2021, you look around the world, and again, you see these kind of tough, strongman leaders emerging in Asia and in Europe and uh, other places around the world where people are willing to uh, 
really escape from their freedom of thought and expression in order to feel that they belong in the system put together by this tough guy, you know, this strong man. You know, through, so through identification with that, they get their needs for security and comfort met but, and sacrifice their own unique individuality and capacity for freedom of thought. Yeah, in the, yeah, in the book he talks about these authoritarian personalities uh, as being a kind of sado and masochistic relationship where you have the masochist, which is the person who is uh, willing to submit themselves to the authoritarian leader mm-hmm. um, who take who derives a great amount of satisfaction from kind of being told what to do or, or at least a sense of security um, from it and is willing to submit and give up and subsume themselves to the sadist who is the authoritarian mm-hmm. um, you know it's it's rare that you ever see in societies a whole bunch of people submitting to a really nice authoritarian <laughs> you know it's not like the smiling authoritarian or like as one would have a relationship with like Jesus Christ or something where there's an element of relationship and then kind of submission to God in a mm-hmm. certain way but to something peaceful like Jesus Christ or, you know, God in the kind of Abrahamic religions tends to be a bit of an authoritarian, to, yes. to put it mildly. And, the, and but, they say we should do what? Fear God, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 They, you know, you talk about the God-fearing person, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. You know. Also, the, as you're speaking, it reminds me of something else that's really uh, uh, a problem for a long time, which continues to today, which is the rise of cults. Oh, jeez, yeah. You know, we we just had this big cult leader just sentenced to 120 years in prison. (laughs) You know, I'm thinking when he gets out at at the age of 180, maybe he would have learned his lesson, right? (laughs) Yeah, jeez, yeah, maybe. (laughs) Uh, Would Charles Manson ever learn his lesson? Uh, I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, But, you you know, there is kind of a line that obviously is drawn through all this between religion authoritarian leaders and dictators of that sort and and cult leaders they they all have the same playbook yes. the same playbook of a sadist you know uh, and the, the the sadist delivers great satisfaction because they're imposing their will on these people and they get off on that power you know it's they have an unquenchable taste for power and so they need the masochist and it forms this uh, bizarre relationship and I've even seen in times with things where there's like authoritarian leaders and they denigrate their followers who are masochists yes, and speak down to them and gaslight them and use all these things. And their, their adherents um, still love them for it and take the abuse. And it becomes this kind of abusive relationship like, you know, somebody like a bad domestic situation. Mm-hmm. And, 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 the, and they always have a system where there's always an other who they can scapegoat even worse, you know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I have all these grievances, but but I'm better than that group, you know, or or those those kind of people over there, you know. And so they have this emotional sense of 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 uh, superiority, while at the same time submitting themselves to a dominant authority. You know, you talk about a sick relationship. Oh. <laughs> That's one if I ever heard one, you know. And and then the person, after a while, doesn't even really need external sources of control. They internalize it, and they become their own slave Holder, their own prison warden, and and they control their own thoughts and their own aspirations and their own uh, capacity for freedom of thought, because wow. because they start to feel anxiety once they start to think in a way that might expose them to the truth of how manipulated and controlled and unfree they actually are. And I'd assume this just cycles and gets worse and worse and worse because the longer you believe it, the longer you buy into it, the more of your just personality is tied up in this S&M relationship, uh, the harder it is to admit that you were wrong if mm-hmm. you were wrong, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's where, as a therapist, where I really have my hands full, <laughs> you know, is getting people to actually see what's happening. You know, I often say that, you know, if someone is uh, aware and, and uh, awakened enough you know, if someone has enough self sense of themselves, 
a self of being self-actualized, self-realized, and actually can understand themselves and therefore have the capacity for understanding the rest of reality, you don't have to really tell them anything about what's right, what's wrong, who to vote for, you know, who's, who's, who's good for, the, for them you know, in a relationship or, or as a president or anything else. They will figure it out. You know. mm-hmm. uh, on, on the other hand, if someone ha- has not crossed that threshold of self-awareness, and, uh, and and is able to see things with clear eyes, uh, almost no amount of um, evidence will convince them to the contrary. Mm-hmm. And uh, that type of person is, is almost completely lost until something happens. Maybe their life, for some reason, because of the inherent contradiction, stops working, and then under threat of annihilation economically or domestically or some other threat, they're forced to grow and, and start to awaken. But, so I often say that you know, a person who's conscious, you don't have to tell them anything. But a person who's unconscious, you can't tell them anything. No. They're not willing. They're not, in a, they're not in a place. They don't have ears to hear. They don't have eyes to see, so to speak. And Dr. Carl, so you know, we're, we're talking about this one person, this, this person who's been closed off that is uh, unconscious and, and, and maybe following an authoritarian leader or some kind of authoritarian institution. But then this kind of mind virus is so insidious that Fromm points out how, you know, uh, how it begins to impact those around them that then get sucked into it. And he said, however much a German citizen may be opposed to the principles of Nazism, if he has to choose between being alone and feeling that he belongs to Germany, most persons will choose the latter. Mm-hmm. It can be observed in many instances that persons who are not Nazis nevertheless defend Nazism against criticism of foreigners because they feel that an attack on Nazism is an attack on Germany. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you bring in a next level of people that then fall in line with this. And then there's also another thing where it's, um, I've noticed it's kind of interesting in my neighborhood right now. And I, I think this is a positive thing, but I could see how it could be very bad. Um, the, you see those signs that they have and it's like, I believe, you know, uh, we believe in science and we believe in, it's, all, it's people kind of proclaiming basic kind of liberal ideas. You know, I believe in inclusivity. We believe that water is life. We believe that black lives matter. And there's these kind of signs that are pop- popping up as a reaction to the current political climate. Uh, especially in my neighborhood, it's like, you know, to, you know, you, you see them just on houses all over the place. And it's a real, it's a nice sentiment that people are sharing. Mm-hmm. But then I began thinking like, I wonder if there's anybody that put that up because they don't want to be the one guy on the block without the sign. <laughs> right. Like at a certain point with more than 50% of that. Now I start thinking to myself, I wonder who these guys are that moved in next door because they're not affirming their belief in these principles. Maybe they don't think black lives matter or something, right? Because they don't have the sign. And then I start realizing how, you know, that can go the other way, right? It could go really bad the other way. It's like one guy puts up a picture of Hitler. Half the block has a picture of Hitler. And I'm like, crap, I better have my my, my picture of Hitler out, right? It could you know, be a positive and negative this kind of a groupthink kind of thing. Um, you know, it's kind of like Fromm says here... Um, uh, you know, modern man is starved for life. <laughs> yeah. but, but since being an automaton, he cannot experience life in the sense of spontaneous activity. So he takes as a surrogate any kind of excitement and thrill, the thrill of drinking, of sports, of vicariously living the excitements of fictitious persons on the screen or in a book or a novel or something. Again, something outside of oneself that we can identify with to avoid feeling that sense, that existential sense of isolation and aloneness, which leads to existential dread and existential anxiety and, and a sense of maybe existential depression. Now, one of the things I clarify, though, with my clients is that there's, there's positive anxiety and depression, and there's negative anxiety and depression. You know, <laughs> you know, you know everybody, of course, is very familiar with the uh, negative types of depression that come from, you know, the loss of a loved one or loss of a job or loss of a sense of identity 
or uh, any other type of loss or reaction to something that's very uh, challenging and stressful and sad that occurs. Um, or, or, or even sometimes, of course, it happens on a biological or genetic level. Some people are genetically predisposed to states of depression. Same mm-hmm. thing happens with anxiety. Anxiety happens when we feel like we're under threat, whether that's a physical threat. You know, the saber-toothed tiger is going to jump out and consume us for dinner. You know, know, or an emotional threat. Oh, don't leave me, my, you know, my my dear, my loved one. I I can't live without you, you know, that type of thing. And so we start to feel, you know, oh, I don't want to lose my job or, oh, I feel economically insecure. And so I'm anxious, you know. So we're all familiar with that type of anxiety and depression. But there's another type, too, which is if our true nature is to be this creative um person of imagination who is literally helping to create a reality of their life and of the universe just to their being in the world, if that is our true nature, then if we're less than that, if we've been holding ourselves back, if we've been identifying with the aggressor, so to speak, or identifying or displacing that sense of self by identification with some cause or some group or some cult or some political party or anything else, then when we start to feel a sense of anxiety, we're we're feeling the anxiety which comes from a deep understanding that we're not being true to our true self. Mm. That's what I call positive anxiety and positive depression. If we're feeling depressed or sad because we know that we've at some level we've given up, we, we, we are not allowing ourselves to flower and become that's this great, magnificent human being we're capable of, that's sad. And so our psyche at a very deep level is signaling us that we need to do something different. We need a change. We need to grow. We need to get back onto the stream of the Tao unfolding and allow it to carry us to our true capacity as a unique organism in the universe. Wow. Um, you know, and I, I think we can probably end up this discussion, which we're talking about um, the the person who has dipped their toe in the, the Tao and the, the stream of Tao and come to pure positive freedom. But there's one more person that, uh, and this probably uh, maybe the most common form of the automaton or somebody that has not quite reached that positive freedom, uh, and especially in the kind of capitalist uh, merchant uh, kind of culture that we live in, is that many people have found themselves to be defined by their professions mm-hmm. and kind of status that way. And so, you know, they... For a sense of, I think, obviously, for you know, you got to make money, right? And you, 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 but you get it. You know, your your needs met monetarily. You get your needs met uh, as a point of belonging if you have a certain type of job. Um, and these things are tenuous because you could lose the job and lose that status and, and and the like. But there are a lot of people that they become kind of trapped in their own. You know, they're trapped in their career. Not just time-wise, but they're trapped in it psychologically that all that they've identified themselves with is their job. And, like, I know people – I know a couple people that were lawyers. And after working so hard to become a lawyer, to have that identity and get that degree and start making that money, after a while they're like, I hate this. And I found that they went to go transcend and and go get into different types of professions because once they put on that – monkey suit they hated it you know um and that lots of us and then also lots of us you know that are don't have the choice to get out of a profession and get out of the mask you have to wear in doing your job during the day Mm -hmm. and you can't be your genuine self when you're in that office maybe there are people that have to um kind of closet themselves with lots of different lifestyle things because it doesn't fly in the office, mm-hmm. you know, or have to keep their views in check, or they have to do things that maybe they really don't like or think are moral in order to keep their job, keep their profession, keep their status. So it's like this kind of low-grade automaton yes. that, that eats at people and stands between them and completely reaching positive freedom. Yes, 
So I, you know, I, I, always, I often think that, you know, the real answer is to claim our freedom, which is our birthright. That is mm. our true Tao, our path towards wholeness and completion. Then, you know, those who resonate with our mission, so to speak, will embrace and support us. And those Should we choose to accept the, uh, the mission, Dr. Tuck? Should you choose to accept it? <laughs> and then those who don't are not really part of our mission, even if they're related to us by birth, culture, place of origin, religion, uh, politics, or tradition. And, you know, uh, you know I, uh, besides, uh, well, in addition to um, uh, Eric Fromm, another existential analyst who heavily influenced me was um, R.D. Lang. You know, who mm. was um, uh, a medical doctor, psychiatrist, psychoanalyst, and he had a great influence uh, over me and uh, my thinking. And I love his definition of psychotherapy. You know, he said that psychotherapy must remain an obstinate attempt between two people to recover the essence of being human through the relationship between them. Wow. That's yes. a big job for you to take on, <laughs> Dr. Todd. That's powerful. <laughs> so as we come to the end of this, uh, Eric Fromm kind of maps out who, how, the, the, how somebody who has reached positive freedom behaves and how they relate to the world. And I started reading this a little bit earlier, but we kind of got off it, so I'll, I'll kind of reiterate it. And it's, in the first place, we know of individuals who are or have been spontaneous, whose thinking, feeling, and acting were the expression of their selves and not of an automaton. These individuals are mostly known as artists. As a matter of fact, the artist can be defined as an individual who can express himself, or herself, Eric, spontaneously. Spontaneous activity is the one way in which man can overcome the terror of aloneness without sacrificing the integrity of his self. For in the <laughs> spontaneous realization of the self, man unites himself anew with the world, with man, with nature, with himself. Doesn't that sound a lot like the Tao? <laughs> and love is the foremost component of such spontaneity. Not love is the disillusion of the self in another person. Not love is the possession of another person, but love as spontaneous affirmation of others. Wow. Hmm. The inability to act spontaneously to express what one genuinely feels and thinks and the resulting necessity to present a pseudo self, you know, like a, a fake self, the part of you that's smiling when you're handing the bag while you're working at McDonald's and oneself are the root of the feeling of inferiority and weakness. Whether or not we are aware of it, there is nothing of which we are more ashamed than not being ourselves. And there's nothing that gives us greater pride and happiness than to think, feel, and say what is ours. And also, there's a point in the book where, well, that's A, that's powerful. B, there's a point in the book where he talks about one thing, and he talks, and I can't use remember the exact phrase, but he talks about basically free thinking and being a free thinking person, and that most people, again, when they're trapped in this automaton state, or they're trapped in negative freedom. Mm -hmm. Their thoughts are pre, kind of prepackaged ideological things, like whether it's a political view, religious view, all these things. You know, like when you get your cable and here's your basic cable package, here's your 10 channels, you know. Here's, <laughs> here's the 10 things you have to believe to be part of our team. You know, and that lots of people grasp onto these things, but they're not thinking freely, or they are thinking just kind of, Heuristically, you know, um, and so a big part of escaping to positive freedom is being able to think for oneself and really, uh, yeah, just become a free thinker. I think that's a big part of what uh, Fromm is talking about as well. Yes, yes. And, you know, and, th and that's all of our challenge. Um, you know, one of the things that every human being has is the complete privacy inside of their own head <laughs> you know nobody can see exactly what's going on you know when you're thinking you're in there thank god <laughs> for better or for worse we're yeah. in there all by ourselves you know and but but yet uh, human beings are what we're social animals right we like being in association with others and e and either that works to support our capacity to expand and 
uh, individuate or it limits that by having us identify with the so with the social uh recognition and acceptance of others and then we begin to subjugate our uniqueness in order to get that approval from the outside world that yeah. is our existential challenge as human beings and i think that one of the things that taoism does is to provide a framework for us to begin to hold those two realities in consciousness at the same time and be truthful and faithful to our true self you know as a divine expression of the tao well, I'd like to thank everybody for listening, for subscribing to us on Patreon and supporting us. And, you know, if we get a good response to this, we'll keep going and, and, and explore all the 10,000 things that we can on this, in addition to keeping What's This Dow All About, a free public service uh, for the world to get into um, and hopefully themselves escape to free. Yes. Thank you, Dr. Ta- Carl Totten. Always a pleasure to speak with you. Uh, it's been great. Thank you.